นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะThe um, very nice picture of um, one of the nuns at Amaravati and uh, a uh, mother and daughter uh, sitting together in front of the shrine to Ajahn Chah in the Amaravati temple, <clears throat> and the uh, the verse is uh, as I said, Dhamma Pada verse eighty two, which says that. On hearing true teachings, the hearts of those who are receptive become serene, like a lake, deep, clear, and still. And um, a verse that uh, is otherwise translated in other places is, "On hearing the Dhamma, uh, the hearts of those who are wise become serene, like a lake, deep, clear, and still." And in looking at my rendering of this this verse, I, I puzzled over. Uh, why I had rendered it as uh, the hearts of those who are receptive, where all the uh, classic translations say the hearts of those who are wise, and and uh, to be honest, I don't know why I rendered it like that exactly. It's a long time ago that I did it. However, I do feel that uh, there's a, there's something in there about how we get to this place. Of being deep, clear, and still. I mean, that's it's very it's a nice idea, nice image, isn't it? To be deep, clear, and still, to be like a, a serene lake. I like that. That'd be very nice. I wish I was like that, mm-hmm. uh, deep, clear, and still, like a serene lake. Um, and if, as an image, it's a, something we, of course, can hold up and inspire towards and, and feel good about. But yes, as I was saying, the point is, how do you get there? And so, uh, the Buddha is pointing out in this, bo- in this verse that those who are wise on hearing true teachings are like this. And so, uh, or in my rendering, those who are receptive. And I think it's particularly uh, useful to uh, to ponder in our own way to find what what does it mean to be wise. You know, we can. Talk about wise teachings and and wise people and so on. But what does wisdom mean to me? And I think being receptive is an important element of that. Really knowing how to how to receive life, how to receive the message. You know, the, the, the Buddha talked about you know why do you stay stuck in this miserable affair, you know, this samsaric business? Why do you stay stuck in it? Two things: not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. And in other words, we don't get the message. We've got plenty of suffering, 
Anybody here not got enough suffering? <laughs> I'm sure we've all got enough suffering. Yeah. We keep getting, that's the message. The message is there, and we don't get the message. Why are we not getting the message? Well, uh, you could say, well, because we're not wise, but I think also it's valid to say because we're not receptive. We're not really, we're not receiving, we're not hearing the teachings. The Dhamma is giving us the teachings all the time. Uh, Ajahn Chah, one of Ajahn Chah's talks that I was um, listening to recently in, in translation, uh, where he's talking about how actually old people, they get the most teachings of everybody because they, the bodies are always aching. They never get a break from the teachings. You know, they stand up, they sit down, they walk. It's, there's always pain. And what do we do with the pain? Do we say, well, this is the way it is? Very rarely, speaking personally. I <laughs> wish it wasn't like this. <laughs> it shouldn't be this way. Well, of course it should be this way. Yeah, of course it should be. You're born, we get old. We get decrepit and then we die. That's how it is. We all know that. It's never been any different for anybody that's ever lived throughout all the human history. And yet still, we somehow resist the message. We resist the message. What in Buddhism is called the Dhamma Dutta, the celestial messengers. Old age, sickness and death. These messengers are all around us, but we resist them. And so we don't get, the data is not getting in. So the process is not completed. We're not, we're not hearing it properly. And so I really think that uh, this is a, a useful contemplation to, to just to see not just how wise am I, which has got its place, but how receptive am I. If I want to hear the teachings, if I want to get the message, then I think it's important that we really learn to train ourselves to be receptive, to receive freely. And part of that, of course, is to see, well, where am I obstructing it? How am I obstructing it? Or in other words, where are my attachments? Because it's always our attachments. It's always our attachments. So if there's no attachments, there's no resistance, there's no suffering. The Buddha had the sort of experience we have. He lived in the world, you know, Probably had to put up with rainy weather yeah, and uh, nettle bites, nettle stings like we get, and, and, and sore knees, sore back. You know, the Buddha had all of these things, but did the Buddha suffer? No. Why did the Buddha not suffer? Because there was no resistance. No resistance, no attachments, no suffering. Pain, yes. Yeah, pain is part of the package, like pleasure. You know, it's part, that's what our nerves do. And they do pleasure and pain. But... We don't have to be making suffering out of our pleasure and pain. That's something we do, something extra. Why do we do it? That's a good question. So yes, in theory, of course, if there was plenty, if there was wisdom, we wouldn't be doing that. But how do we, what are we, what what is it that we're actually doing? You you can't go to Tesco's and get wisdom. You you can't even go on Amazon and get wisdom. You You have lots of books published by Mahayana Publishing House called Wisdom, but that's not what we're talking about here. Actual wisdom is like the difference between reading a recipe on how to make scones. You know when you taste good scones? I mean really good scones with butter dribbling off them and and just a a smidgen of of strawberry jam. You know what that's like? I mean they're really something, aren't they? Now there's a world of difference between that and a recipe. 
I mean, you can download a recipe for making scones, but that doesn't mean to say you know how to make scones. So we can read all about Dhamma. We can know all about wisdom. But do we really receive those teachings? Are we really receptive to them uh, so we get the message about life? So it's, uh, it's important, I would suggest even useful, that uh, we highlight this. See, how receptive are we? And how do we deal with the message when it comes to us? Do we, do we turn to the message? Do we put our hands in Anjali and say, welcome to the teacher of suffering? Or do we default to our habits of doing a pizza or something, whatever our habits might be? And so to investigate this, and, and, so, and I would suggest also that we only need so much information about how to make scones, and then you just got to get on with it. You know, you got to get your hands dirty. You get well, not dirty, but messy. You get the flour out, and you, whatever else goes into scones. To be honest, I don't know what goes into scones, but just a, just a little bit of salt, not too much salt, not not too little, the right amount. And how do you know the right amount? Well, it's by experiment. Often we get it wrong, but that's where we learn. We learn by really getting in there and doing it, not by abstracting about it. And so I think that uh, one of the reasons why we don't get the message is because we're so addicted to the abstract reality. We, uh, as Ajahn Chai once said, you know, the reason you guys don't know anything is because you know so much. You know so much about Dhamma that you don't actually know Dhamma. And, and we have all this information, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. And, and so we don't get the message. We, we default to our habits of distraction. Yeah? So uh, not, not being caught up in you know, always going somewhere else to get the answer, I think is part of it. Uh, you know, we, we're suffering, and so we can go and look at a book. You know, we can go on another retreat. We can go to a foreign country. We can go to do all these things to deal with our predicament. But ultimately, what it's called, what's called for is to stop all this going places and doing things and look at this. To really look, fairly squarely, what is going on here? To really look at it, look it in the face. And it's interesting, oh, those of you that have this experience, when we stop following our habits of distraction and allow ourselves to simply turn around and look at ourselves and see what are we doing here and now that's making a problem out of this. Yeah, like boredom, for instance. You know, boredom can be really difficult. Really, it can be really difficult if we're caught up in it. But if we simply turn our attention around and look at boredom, what is boredom? What's happening right now? What, what is it that we're getting upset about? You know, we're getting upset about something. What is it we're getting upset about? It's not like gross anger. It's subtle. You know, but what is it we're getting upset about? Or, as I think I mentioned Last week also, uh, the mind state of anticipation. We can make a real problem out of anticipation uh, very easily and um, getting caught up in it. But if we simply stop and exercise the discipline of attention, turn it around and look fairly and squarely at anticipating, call it by its name, anticipating, anticipating, this is what I'm doing right now, anticipating, until our attention really connects with the activity of anticipation, and if we look at it without resistance, 
you know, without blaming. Well, I'm anticipating because they're late, or I'm anticipating because of my conditioning and my early life experiences, right? Whatever. You know, we turn and we look at it directly, then the chances are sooner or later we'll see it in a completely different way and our relationship will be transformed to it. So we don't always have to be going someplace. We don't always have to get something more to meet our experience in the moment. I was reflecting today, uh, coming back up the hill, um, with a few nettle stings on my legs and my arms because we were down the lake there doing work and and uh, it would have been nice if I'd had an anagarika who could just get me a dock leaf and because you know if you know about nettles the best thing to do is usually I'm told that if there's nettles very nearby there are dock leaves and you get a dock leaf you screw it up and say, oh, the nettle sting is gone you know, nature can be like that you know if there's this here then the solution to it is that there, right next door to each other. We don't have to always be following our proliferations about what do I need to do, where do I need to go, where do I get this information from, I'm so lacking. No, just stop and look. And part of it is a willingness to let go of our addiction to the rational process, the rational mind. Our rational minds are so clever that uh, it amounts to an addiction. We, we keep thinking about the cause of the suffering rather than bringing our attention to the actual experience of limitation, the feeling of limitation that we have in the moment, to feel it in the body, to see what's going on in the mind, to bring mindfulness, genuine mindfulness to bear on it, you know, not judging it, not pushing it away, not indulging in it, and we can find resolution might take time. Maybe we don't find resolution immediately, but it's still the path. And, but the temptation is to think and to think and to maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. And, and even to think in terms of Dhamma. We, we can think we're being virtuous by rattling off all our favourite Dhamma interpretations of suffering. But does it really deal with it? Again, to, uh, to quote our, our teacher Lumpacha, when he had been uh, to visit the West for a while, um, I think, well, he too came over on two occasions. And when he came back to Thailand, he had somehow gotten himself um, to hear about um, Bodhidharma, the, uh, the famous monk who took Buddhism to China. And he really liked Bodhidharma. And he was telling this story about Bodhidharma. And in fact, he wanted a picture. He got one of the monks to, to do a picture to put up in his uh, kuti of Bodhidharma. He says, says, what I really like about Bodhidharma is this. He asks you a question, and if you answer wrong, he whacks you. If you answer right, he whacks you. And if you don't answer, he whacks you. And he loved that. He says, this is the real teaching. He says, this is the way it should be. We Theravadans, we always go, it's like this, it's like that, this step, that step, this stage, that stage. Is there endlessly going on about practice, but he said, actually, that doesn't help. Knowing about it sometimes makes things worse even. If if we've got so much information that we can't address the actual experience. So finding a way or finding the willingness to recognise where it's our rational faculties that are getting in the way and just come back to the body. 
What does it feel like you know, to be anticipating something? Where does it feel anticipation? Where do you feel anticipation? You know, or sadness? Sadness. You, know, you can pay a lot of money to a grief therapist. And, you know, maybe there's a place to and a time to go and see grief therapists. But it might also be all you need to do is to just sit still and stop going places and, and ask your body, where do you feel sad? And bring the attention, bring the mindfulness to bear in it in a here and now, non-judgmental way and, and to witness the magic of that receptivity, learning to be receptive of what's happening in the moment, to, to acknowledge, yes, there is this feeling of limitation and then to feel for a look to see where the cause is. But uh, also I, I want to emphasize that in, uh, in suggesting that we observe where we're addicted to our rational faculties and can make things worse by thinking too much about things, that I don't want to demonize thinking. That would be also a mistake. Yeah, so sometimes absolutely the right thing to do is to engage the thinking mind. But whether it's contemplation or proliferation, we need to know for ourselves. And that's where our formal practice is very helpful. Yeah, you practice with whatever the meditation object is, mindfulness of breathing, contemplation, Contemplating the theme of loving kindness, compassion, sound of silence, uh, body sweeping, body awareness. And in the process of uh, applying attention in this careful, skillful way, you get to see the mind just creating stories and getting lost in them. And if we're honest, you say, all oh, right, that's what that is storytelling. Storytelling again. And we see it. And we, we learn. I mean, how else did we know? We didn't know that before. We just thought that was reality. Actually, it's Hollywood. Uh, it's not reality. That's just, that's just fantasy. That we, we're living a lot of the time just living in this fantasy world and making these stories. But as we do formal practice, we become, oh, right. Actually, I don't have to do that. That's a story. Come back to the breath. Come back to the sound of silence. Come back to the theme of loving kindness. Come back to body sweeping. And little by little, learning not to tell ourselves stories. And, and then, after the mind becomes still and calm, then something comes along, and, but you notice it. It's just as a quiet, in a quiet way, you notice there's sort of this ripple over here. There's kind of like a ripple, there's an irritation, sort of on the edge of attention. And it's coming closer. And, you know, and then up it comes, and there's some, some feeling of maybe resentment is there and we feel strong enough clear enough settled enough and so it's okay to actually turn our attention and to choose to engage it to contemplate it yeah. and so that's what we do in the beginning it's like this it's all right. yeah. it wasn't there before it's there now yeah and then there's this sense of of me yeah, my resentment there. All right. And we start to get a feeling for this perception of my resentment arising and my problem that I've got to solve and this is getting in the way of my practice. And Oh, very interesting. And up to that point, maybe we're all right. There's a stillness, there's a steadiness, there's a contemplation going. But then the next thing you know, in come the stories. And say, well, if my mother hadn't done that to me when I was young or if my father had been there and... 
if I didn't have my moon in Pisces, for goodness sake, you've got no idea how difficult it is having moon in Pisces. And, and so, you know, well, guess what that is? That's not contemplation anymore, is it? That is proliferation. And so we learn something. All right, very interesting. Come back to meditation objects. We've got to be very honest. And realize, okay, that is not contemplation. And to learn to tell the difference. Another thing we can do is when the difference between contemplation and proliferation or speculation is uh, with contemplation we can choose to stop it. Say, okay. With proliferation is so identifying whether it's contemplation or or, um, or proliferation. Now, I'm not. I'm presenting this in a very clear and clever way, and so on. You know, it sounds all very straightforward and easy. It's not always that straightforward and easy. It's not that clear. But to introduce a theme, so that we understand, it's important to know whether it's contemplation or proliferation that we're engaging in. Because proliferation storytelling is making karma. It's actually stirring things up. Whereas contemplation can be undoing the tangle. You know, we've all got our own tangles. We've got to undo them little by little. You find, is it making it tighter or is it making it looser? Proliferation makes it tighter. Contemplation makes it looser. So with our obstructions, those places where we're not being receptive, those places where we're not getting the message, you know, to engage our contemplative mind. So what's going on here? What, what is all this me and mine that's going on all the time? You know, our, our attachments that that we harbour and some gross, some subtle and and to be willing and to be interested in them. Yeah. Now different people are different. We're all different in where this me and mine expresses itself. Some people it's very much in their possessions. My things, my clothes, the idea of sharing their, their clothes with somebody else. No way would you let somebody else wear their clothes. Or my possessions, my computer, my laptop, my iPad, my yeah, whatever, my gadgets, my, my car, my, I don't know, things that people have. My toys, that's where it comes from. You know, children, this is mine. I'm not going to share it with you. you know, that's what children, they won't share their toys. And, and so that can become a habit that we can get stuck with. Mine, and this is me having mine. You can look at that and and see, well, is that beautiful? Is that helpful? Or is that actually creating a tighter knot? To ask the question, to use a contemplative mind to ask the question, is this taking me towards greater ease or more of a contracted sense of ouch, that pain that we're all burdened with? So my things, my body. Interesting, recently I... uh, I, I had been going through a process of seeing an uh, orthopedic specialist about getting a, a, my knees ad- addressed surgically, and they seemed very willing and even set me up with a, a tape for surgery, which I hadn't agreed to, but it was generous of them. And um, so I went to see him and uh, I cancelled it on Wednesday. And what a relief. I was so relieved. I realized this anxiety had been building up that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, where's that coming from? Well, I still see this as me and mine and the idea of a big lump of it being cut out and replaced by titanium or whatever I didn't, you know, something here wasn't wasn't keen on that at all and so when these sort of things happen, you know, or somebody makes a comment about your body weight or 
or you know, or how bald you are, or something. Yeah, yeah. And there's this little little heat comes up. Yeah, our hands go together, Anjali, if not physically, literally, but inwardly, and we welcome the message. We welcome the teacher. Yes, this is this this is me, and this is mine. This is an attachment. This is an obstruction. This is where I'm not being receptive to the teachings, to reality. So uh, my things, my body, um, my mind, my problems, my obstructions, and my neuroses, my habits, my hang-ups, my opinions. Most of us probably, I don't know, most of us probably got a little bit of work to do in that area. I really think my opinions are important, and I generally expect you to agree with them. (laughs) And I suspect most people are sort of something like that. You know. And, you know, it's okay up to a certain point, but then it goes beyond a certain point where the heat comes up and say, okay, that's the point. You know, have a little kind of argy-bargy, you know, from time to time with your friends, that's okay. You know, I like quite enjoy debating things. I think it's kind of exercising the brain. You know, I think a little bit of argy-bargy is all right from time to time. But when, it gets to, when the heat comes up, and say, okay, it's gone past a certain point. How quick? Uh, how quick can we be to catch it? That's the thing. Yeah. So even when we know what we're doing, our mindfulness, our alertness, is too slow, often, and so we have to learn to be quicker. Yeah. So recognizing these things, um, where wherever they are, whatever the obstructions manifest and seeing how how not 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 getting caught up in you know idealizing about how we should be and how other people should be and that that just that doesn't help at all but how quickly can we remember which you've heard me say once or twice here and now whole body mind Judgment-free awareness. That's 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 what we're working with here and now. Whole body mind here and now because we're getting lost in the past is fantasy. Getting lost in the future is fantasy. And what we've really got is this reality here. Can we bring ourselves to this? Not pretending there isn't memories of the past. Not pretending there isn't that wonderful capacity for extrapolating and speculating about what we call the future. You know, it's a wonderful aspect of our intelligence to be able to learn from the past and project into the future, but not getting lost in it. Yeah. Getting lost in it is a problem. Like joy and, and sorrow, there's not, nothing wrong with joy, nothing wrong with sorrow, unless we get lost in them. Yeah. Praise and blame, there's nothing wrong with praise or blame unless we get lost in them. So the past and the future, likewise, and not getting lost in them, coming to here and now, whole body-mind... Actually, it's easy to be emphasizing one over the other. Usually, our mind, usually with an overeducated, split off perspective that we have on reality, to really come into the body and, as I was saying earlier, to feel. What does it really feel like to be anticipating? What does it really feel like to be disappointed? You know, if we don't catch disappointment, it's very easy for that energy to. Out it comes. I am so disappointed in you. Huh? Huh? Yeah. I really am really, really disappointed. Now. 
Well, we missed it. We missed. We weren't being receptive. Absolutely not receptive. We didn't get the message at all. We didn't see what it was we were attached to. So the energy came up into our hearts and into our heads, and then out through our mouth. And so, well, what does it really feel like to feel disappointed in the body? Where does it feel? In our neck, in our shoulders, in our chest, in our guts. You know, to feel disappointed. So. Or for those who are too in their body, you know, the, the very physical types, you know, to listen, listen to the stories that are going on in our heads, the story creating, you know, to get a perspective on that, to call it by things, all right, stories, stories. Or as the Buddha called it, house builders, you know, the house builder, always building houses, 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 places to get fixed in and until in his last life. He, he said, your ridgepole is broken. No more houses will you build. No more places of abiding. No more fixed abode. No more fixed positions. And so, here and now, whole body, mind, and then, really importantly, judgment-free awareness. Now, often when I talk about this judgment-free, people are assuming that somehow I'm taking a position against having an opinion about something. I got opinions about all sorts of things. The Buddha had opinions about all sorts of things. Ajahn Chah, he had all sorts of opinions about stuff. It's how we relate to the opinions that's the issue. If we are lost in our opinions, we've got a problem. Because when somebody else comes along with another opinion, clash. Or if we're caught up in our opinion and we think somebody's not listening to us, we keep trying, do you hear me? Do you get me? Do you understand me? Do you hear me? Forcing, don't you get what I'm saying? What, what's that all about? Hmm. Caught up in my opinion. So, having the opinion is not a problem. This wonderful ability we have to assess things, you know, much better than the rabbits. I mean, rabbits, they don't have a very good ability to assess things, they get squashed because they don't know how to cross the road properly. Hedgehogs also, I mean, they're terrible, lacking in mental faculties and uh, even whales unfortunately I, mean, I think I mentioned the whales recently a whole bunch of plastic bags they open their mouth and swallow them all <coughs> you know if the whales were a bit more discerning they would say well that's, they'd look at it first and check it and say oh that's plastic I'm not going to eat it that's not a bunch of shrimp you know, so but fortunately we human beings have this fabulous mental faculty to be able to discriminate uh, to discern to judge but it's what sort of discrimination, what sort of discernment, what sort of um, judgment are we exercising? If we're lost in it, if we're caught up in it, then actually it's creating a problem, creating stress. So the reason I talk about judgment-free is not to say that we shouldn't be having views on things. There's all sorts of issues in the world that are morally reprehensible and to not have an opinion about it, to not have a judgment on it, would be, you know, there's something uh, unsuitable about that, to say the least. But when we grasp at our judgment in such a way where our heart becomes divided, we create an enemy, you know, whether it's outwardly or within inwardly. You know, my habit of whatever it is, so I can get all judgmental about it, I can make a problem out of it, you know, that's not helping, is it? But to identify and say, actually, you're stuck there. As a habit. So that's a view, that's a judgment. So that's inappropriate. So we can let go of that. Yeah. And so 
getting the message, how to be receptive to life, how to be receptive. So, so we are hearing the true teachings. I would suggest uh, it does call for a consistent, careful, sensitive investigation of this moment, this experience, until we get the message for ourselves. So here and now, whole body, mind, judgment, free awareness. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Sa <laughs>